You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from John chapter 6, verses 46 to 54. John 4, 46 to 54. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you met me before, my name is Corey. I'm the Associate Pastor here. It's so good to see you all. It's lovely 11 a.m. service. Uh, I want to start off with a question. When have you sort of believed something, moved from a sort of believe something into a definitely believing it? So uh, in my early years of teaching, uh, I taught an IT class, a computing class, and kids were making websites. That was one of the tasks I gave them. And one of the students, one of my students was making a powerlifting website. And I went up to him and I said, oh, you're into weightlifting. And he said, yeah, yeah, I love weightlifting. And all of a sudden, all these other kids started chiming in and they were saying, uh, they were telling me, Mr. Fung, this student here is actually a powerlifter himself. And I was really shocked because he was really short. He was shorter than me. He was like uh, down here and he looked kind of scrawny and uh, you'd 100% if you saw him not pick him up, uh, pick him as a weightlifter. And then the other students were like, seriously, he is the number one weightlifter in Australia for his weight group, for his age. And I was like, surely not. There's no chance. But the kids were so adamant and they all believed it. And the student asked him, are you actually, is this true? And he goes, YouTube me. And, you know, that's, that's a, a flex and a half, right? If you're like YouTube me, you know, that's a big flex. But before then, I, I was like, I'm going to ask my friend who actually loves weights and working out at that time. So I asked my mate, and I was like, have you heard of this guy? And he goes, yes, I've heard of him and he's an absolute beast. And so I was like, all right, I'll do it. Then I'll YouTube him. Went home, YouTubed him. And there he was, my student, number one in Australia for his weight class uh, and his age. He could deadlift and squat 3.5 times his body weight. I never gave him a detention again. Right. 
See, we're in a current, our current series called The Seven Signs of Jesus, a series where we take a look at the miraculous signs of Jesus as seen in the Gospel of John, a signs that depict the might and power of this Jesus, the Son of God, as crowds and close friends are left in awe. And in today's passage, we see Jesus' second sign where he heals an official's son. And what we see throughout this passage is a man move from a a sort of belief to a definite belief. We sort of see a faith evolve right in front of us as, as Jesus shows his miraculous powers in healing this official's child. And it's quite a story, one that includes more than the official, but also others around him also. And they, and they're all wanting something and which we'll see Jesus respond, telling us a lot about who he is as well as who uh, we are as a people. But first, it begins with my first point. The first point being uh, with a man seeking the signs of Jesus. So when's the most desperate that you've been? Perhaps it's been when you were stranded somewhere and desperately needed help to get home, or perhaps it was when you were at a real low point in your life and you desperately needed a way out. Or maybe you are once desperately seeking help for somebody that is so dear to you, somebody you care and love for. Well, with a sign from Jesus we see today, it starts off with a man who is depicted as quite desperate. And how do we know that? Well, in verse 46 it says, So he came from Cana to Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. See, when John, the author of this book, uses the word official here, it's in its Greek translation it refers to somebody who belongs to the king, meaning that this man was a royal official to King Herod, King Herod the king at the time of the Jews, King, King Herod's court. And so what this naturally means is that this was a man who was of very, very high standing. Being in the court of Herod, it meant he was likely very wealthy, uh, a man of status, a man of power. And yet, as verse 47 tells us, here is a man who had heard of this Jesus, who'd come from Judea to Galilee, And so this royal official wanted to go ask this Jesus to come down and heal his son who was on his deathbed. Now to envision a man of such high standing, a man who essentially had it all, and yet he is of a lowly carpenter making way and wanting to go see him, it tells us of a man who is extremely desperate. Because you'd think a royal official would have access to some of the best doctors in the area. You'd think as a royal official, he would have access to all the ailments for his severely sick son. And yet he simply hears of this Jesus, whispers of this Jesus being in Cana, and he needs to go get the attention of Jesus to come heal his son because he's desperate. It's likely that news had already traveled throughout the region that this man named Jesus had been doing crazy miracles like the water to wine at the wedding miracle that we heard from last week's passage. And so these whispers must have reached the official now who probably didn't have many options left. So this story starts off with a man seeking the signs of Jesus. He had heard of what Jesus could do and desperately wanted to experience it himself. And it gives us a bit of insight to that initial step of belief that can sometimes happen, can't it? Where someone is desperate, perhaps at a point in their life when they need something, or have, and they've exhausted everything possible to, to resolve something important. And so they resort to something they've heard from somebody or, or been suggested. 
Think of those movies where, you know, the main character has something terrible happen to them and, and they search for every possible solution or remedy to fix it. And even if it means that they'd have to do something they don't know, they wouldn't normally do or something completely out of character. It's a classic movie trope. See, the royal official was at this point of desperation here. He needed to seek after something that seemed impossible to attain. But the difference here with, say, a movie plotline is that this royal official actually reached out to the one person in history who could make the impossible possible. And we've seen countless, we've seen countless stories like this. You know, I think of the recent news, the recent news of, the recent tragic news of actor Matthew Perry, who was one of the main characters on the sitcom Friends that you guys may have heard of and would have seen in the news over the past week or so. And in his memoir, he talks about his long-time struggles with drugs and alcohol. And he then describes that, that after hitting rock bottom, he reached out to God in desperation, saying, this is what from his memoir, he says, God, please help me, show me that you are here. God, please help me. And then he would go on to write in his memoir, as I kneeled, the light slowly began to get bigger and bigger until it was so big that it encompassed the entire room. I was starting to feel better. I started to cry, like the shoulder shaking, kind of uncontrollable weeping. But I wasn't crying because I was sad, but crying because the first time in my life I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. Decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness, all was being washed away like a river of pain, gone into oblivion. I had the I'd been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. And this time I'd prayed for the right thing, help. Now, I have no idea if Matthew Perry was a Christian or saved by Christ. No, only our good, our good and just God knows the depths of his heart and knows the depths of our heart. We can only be hopeful for a gentleman like him. But this is just one of those many stories who, in, of people who in their desperation have maybe heard of God or maybe heard of Jesus before and are at breaking point and they cry out to him because they're just that desperate. And in their desperation, is they're met by God where they are and their desperation many times in these stories grows into a full-fledged faith. Now, it's quite amazing that stories like this that we hear about still happen today. It reveals to us the power of God and his good news that still changes lives, you know, and that we still see the evidence of that passage in 2 Corinthians 5 where it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But while the royal official wants to go meet Jesus to request his son's healing, it's clear that for the official, his belief at this stage isn't complete yet. See, at verse 46 and 47, it's still at a stage of desperation, like grabbing onto whatever straw he could find, a glimmer of belief and hope in what he had heard. Because he was a man who was still seeking after the signs of Jesus. He was seeking Jesus that Jesus may, uh, in his power, heal his son. And so as the official meets Jesus and asks him of his need, He's met with a response from Jesus that shows what my second point is. My second point is that shows a people seeking the spectacle of Jesus. Look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
See, the word you here is actually um, pluralized in its original language. So Jesus was directing this not just at the official, but at the people around the official as well. The people around him and the people around him were Galileans, right, who had welcomed Jesus uh, as seen in, in the prior verses to our passage and were amazed and at awe of this Jesus. But while they sounded welcoming and very loving towards Jesus, with Jesus' response, we, we understand why these people were so welcoming of, to Jesus. It's because they were attracted to the signs and wonders he had performed. They were all about the spectacle. Theirs was a shallow faith, a surface-level belief that was less so about what Jesus had to say and more so about what he could do. They wanted the flashy stuff that they'd probably heard make the waves across uh, the region, almost like they wanted Jesus to earn his status. It's as theologian Gary M. Burge says, the Galileans want Jesus to prove himself with an act of power. They welcomed him, hoping to see the signs and wonders such as they'd perhaps heard from the wedding in Cana. They wanted to see and experience a miracle. But Jesus knew better, which is why he responds in this manner. Jesus is basically saying to them, you only welcome me or come to me because you want to see my power, or you want to believe in the miracle worker rather than the Messiah. You come seeking the spectacle, not the saviour. And this is something that plagued the Jewish people even after Jesus. You know, as Apostle Paul criticises in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Jews demand miraculous signs, Paul says, and that as a pastor and author John Calvin says, these were a people who irrationally and immediately attached themselves to signs while they had little time for the grace of Jesus, rejecting the gospel with proud disdain because they had no appetite for anything but miracles. But this isn't something that's only specific to the Jewish people of the time. But it's still true today for many. You think of those perhaps who aren't Christian. There are plenty of people uh, who hold firm to the well-known words, seeing is believing. And so any notion of believing or having faith in a religion is based off a miracle happening. There are many people today who say, I'll only listen to what you have to say once I see something spectacular. Prove it to me. Prove that your God is real. But even then, I think the reality is for many of those who do say that, is that if God in fact did display his a miracle or some power that they actually witness, it's more likely that they will just react in outward surprise, like, wow, but then no inward faith. Or even maybe they might disregard it or pass it off because their hearts were already hardened and not even a sign or wonder would change that. You know, a study was done from the the newspaper, The New Yorker, which found that for a decent percentage of people, facts don't change our minds. A quote from the article says this, even after the evidence for their beliefs had been totally refuted, people fail to make appropriate revisions in those beliefs. It was essentially saying that for a lot of people, they go, a lot of people go into something already firmly believing one way and nothing can change that. Even if something completely factual and true presents itself, 
people go in wanting their minds not to be changed, which many of the, the groups, from the people from the camp prove God is real, tend to lean towards. But while those who aren't Christian can often ask, you know, of God, prove yourself through spectacles of signs and wonders, Christians just as well do the same, but in a more different way. Because to many believers, their faith can be seen as some sort of religious sideshow. Faith in a God that is only about signs, wonders, miracles. Almost like God is some sort of magical being waiting to demonstrate his power and might at the request of his followers. Which is essentially how the Galileans perceive Jesus, you know, like, like grab your popcorn, people. Come, Jesus is in town and he's going to perform something crazy. Come see. And there are plenty of churches that are still like that today. There are churches whose main pull is to get people to come on stage that they can be healed in front of the masses so everyone can see Jesus do something amazing. Churches who actively seek demon-possessed people so that they can highlight their deliverance ministries on TV. Churches who believe a glory cloud will appear when they worship and gold will rain on them from their amazing worship. Can you see the dangers here? Here are believers who are grossly devoted to the spectacle of Jesus. That as author Arkent Hughes says, constantly seeking signs and wonders and miracles to confirm their faith, which misses the mark on the whole thing. It's a faith that is focused on sensationalism, which so easily leads to things which are so far from the truth of the gospel that it no longer has anything to do with Jesus, but merely lies and falsehoods that sinners have concocted to be perceived as a true faith. It's where believers are so fixated on the signs and wonders of Jesus that they reduce Jesus to simply a miracle worker and that's it. A spiritual magician in our minds, you know, where we believe only when our minds are blown away from something crazy happening. So it can dangerously lead us to lose a grip on reality, blind us to the deception of others, other teachers, and the deception of our own sinful hearts, where it no longer becomes about Jesus at all, but it purely becomes just about us. You know, what has God shown me today? What has God done for me today? How has God amazed me today? People merely seeking the spectacle of Jesus. See, Jesus in his warning to the Galileans and to the official says, this is not a true belief. This is not true faith. The signs from Jesus weren't meant to lead to people to worship the signs. They were meant to lead people to worship him. And so this isn't about completely disregarding the signs and wonders of Jesus. Even today, wherever you may land, in regards to God's activity in the world. I don't think we can doubt that we have a God who's indeed active in our world. And for some places and people, I personally believe God still does use miracles, signs and wonders that help people come to know him and give their lives to him in worship. But what's important here is the purpose behind it all. That in Jesus' time, and even still today, These signs were meant to show the power of God as they bring uh, people to turn to him. He is their main event, not the opening act. It's as Arkent says so, so well, the thrust of what Jesus was saying was, 
Oh, that you would think less about the wonders and more about me. See, Jesus tells the official and the surrounding Galileans, stop being drawn to the wrong things. Now, for many of us sitting here today, perhaps we've never drawn to the signs and wonders of Jesus or of faith. Maybe we don't really relate to the Galileans here, you know, or maybe we've never been a part of those kind of churches that are drawn to the spectacular. But in this story, there's something else that this official is drawn to that is quite relatable. Not only seeking the spectacular like those around him, but he was seeking the solutions of Jesus, which is my next point, which can be good and faithful, but can also lead to problems when done wrong. See, have you ever felt completely engrossed in something, in getting what you desire so much that it almost takes over you, you know, where you can become hyper fixated on it? See, there's this, this gripping movie from 10 years ago, and I won't name it because it might be on your to watch list and, you know, apparently spoilers last for 10 years, so I don't want to spoil it for anyone. But it's a great movie where a, a child goes uh, from a family goes missing, feared kidnapped. And the father of the child is obviously heartbroken and wants nothing more but his daughter back. And then as days and weeks go by, he feels that the cops, the police aren't doing anything. They aren't doing enough. And so he decides to take justice into his own hands, capturing who he thinks is the kidnapper without anyone knowing, while trying to get the kidnapper to confess and doing all sorts of terrible things to him. And it's a sad yet gripping story because you see this father just becomes so engrossed in what he wants that he loses sight of everything. You see throughout the movie how he slowly changes into another person, begins to change his attitudes, his values, his morals, ultimately becoming what he hated, a kidnapper himself. See, I think for this royal official, his desperation shows that he wanted this so much he wanted to do anything that he could, anything that he, he could do, that he could do more. He wanted more time with his son. You sense the urgency and the need in how he speaks to Jesus. Like he says in verse 39, Sir, come down before my child dies. You know, a man of high regard, standing, of, of high standing, calls this lowly carpenter, Sir, in front of everyone. He had made known that he had made this trek to Jesus. He had to go up uphill for an arduous trek for ages from Cana to Capernaum, something royal officials would not normally do because they could just send their servants. This man wanted this so much that he had to go to this rumoured Jesus. It was only a rumour this miracle worker that could give him the solution that he desired more than anything. And of course, this is expected, right? This is normal. You know, his child was dying. Of course, the one thing he wants more than anything in that moment was for his son to live. But here was a man dead set on seeking the solution to his problem. Give me the answer I so desperately want. I'll even come to you, Jesus. See, while some of us may not be tempted to seek the spectacle of Jesus, I think almost all of us, one time or another, seek the solutions of Jesus more than anything else, at times even dangerously becoming hyper-fixated on the solutions, where we think, for example, of nothing else but that job that is exactly where I want myself. I want nothing else, God, but that where we want nothing else but that house 
that would be perfect for our family, please, where we want nothing else but that treatment to resolve that illness completely, please. And of course, as Christians, we would do this. We are a people who believe in a God who indeed does give things, you know. In prayer, we often pray in petition to God, asking him for things that we want and need. You know, Philippians 4 verse 6 says, In anything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. But I think the problem arises when we start to see these things as the only thing that we will seek. When we become so engrossed in getting what we want that we lose sight of everything. When we seek the solutions over the Saviour. So we make demands of God. God, you have to give me this. We make ultimatums of God. God, if you do this for me, I will give more, I will pray more, I'll read the Bible more. We can even make threats to God. God, if you do not give me this, I will stop following you. We can become completely absorbed and engrossed with the solution that we prioritise it over God. We begin to think that our way is greater than the Lord God's way. Our purpose more important than God's purpose. So we have a trust in God, but it's a trust that has strings attached. So it's not a true trust. It's not a humble, surrendering trust. One unlike what Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, is trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And I think it's really easy for us to do this in seasons where we've seen God actually give us the things we desire where God seems to keep giving us the solutions we want over and over again. So we begin to take it for granted. No longer grateful for them, but always expecting them. Now, I'm not saying that we can't be bold and faithful in expecting God to meet our petitions. In fact, we should. Scripture tells us that we should be faithful and bold in expecting God to do good things for us. For Psalm 62 verse 5 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him, with the word hope often translated to the word expectation. But what I'm saying here is we have to be mindful of what we're seeking each time. Is God and his will and his purpose, what we desire each time we're met with a problem? Or is he just a means to an end? Does the solution outweigh what God has to say on the matter? How will you respond if God doesn't give you what you want? You know, it's something that we've all gone through. You know, for ages, when I was 25, you know, I prayed so hard that to stay in Adelaide because my single mum was getting married. She's moving to Sydney and I had to up my life to leave everything, all my friends, all my, everything. Uh, the, and I just didn't want to. So I was like praying to the God, please, Lord, let me stay. I'll give my life properly to you, God. You know, I'll give you more. I'll do more for the church. In the end, I did move. Uh, and in the end, when I'm, after I moved, I was actually very angry with him and I rebelled and stopped following for years wasn't until he called me back by his grace that I changed my prayer to, Lord, let me love you and follow you wherever you want me to be and saw the need to trust. And then I did, I feel a genuine peace in my heart, leading me to partial ministry, leading to me where I'm standing here today, again, only by the grace of God. But it was the prayer that changed. Now, I'm sure we've all been, something, been through something similar before. It's so easy, isn't it? Even in the smallest things, we can want it to go just how we want it. I want it like this, God. 
How much more in desperate times can we simply want something so bad that we push God aside? Times where we want something so bad that it completely clouds our faith and judgment, determined to get the solution that we want, lifting our own needs above God's, above, above the God who created us, the God who actually knows what is better for us more than we could ever know. You know, as Romans 8 verse 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And so what I've noticed is that whether it be a people who seek the spectacle of Jesus or perhaps something that most of us more relate to, whether it be a people who are often seeking the solutions of Jesus, the danger for us in both and how they could be summed up is that it's quite easy for us as Christians to seek a self-imagined Jesus, which is my fourth point. We seek a self-imagined Jesus. Now, what I mean from that is that our daily temptation is to seek after a saviour that we've made up in our minds ourselves. We seek a Jesus who is like a powerful genie who can display all sorts of powers and wonders, yet he works for us. A God that meets our every whim, every wish, every desire. It's as author David F. Wells writes in his book, No Place for Truth, he says, we have turned to a God that we can use rather than to a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights. He is a God for us, for our satisfaction. In other words, people seek a self-imagined God who fixes their problems who works for them, a creator God who takes order orders from his creation. And it's easy to say that this is extremely dangerous because first of all, we're seeking a false God, one that we've made up in our own heads that doesn't actually align with the God that we see in the Bible. But we've bent and moulded him to our liking. And what happens is when that God that we have made in our minds doesn't align to how people imagined him, that's when most people leave the faith. They give up or reject this God because he doesn't fit that self-imagined depiction of what we worship. It's It's as theologian and pastor John Owen says, if you are satisfied with an imaginary Christ, you must be satisfied with an imaginary salvation. But the thing is, people don't only reject God when he doesn't fulfill what they seek after. But even even when their self-imagined Jesus gives them what they were seeking, it doesn't guarantee belief. See, I read a story of a young pastor who had a young woman in his church who became uh, critically ill and had a year to live. Uh, her family were the, the Christmas and Easter type of Christian who would only appear at church, church twice a year for those events. Uh, and on this visit, on the, the pastor visiting this ill woman, uh, she, she was challenged. She challenged the pastor, sorry, uh, saying things like this to him. If Jesus healed in the Bible, he should be able to heal me today. If not, what use is he? And so she prayed. And then the pastor prayed with her and the family who were all around her prayed as well. They all pleaded and begged God, even the pastor, the young pastor prayed in a way that he doesn't normally. He was even avoiding terms in his prayer like, if it is your will, he was just like, God, you will heal her. You will heal her, is what he was saying in his prayer. 
to his amazement, God did in fact heal this woman completely. The doctors and nurses actually were shook. They, they, they shook their heads in belief, disbelief, and had no answer as she was sent home. That very Sunday, her entire family was there at church, sitting at the front pews. The once ill woman gave her testimony to the whole church, praising God for his goodness. The following Sunday, her family was there again. In a month's time, it was just the woman and her husband at the church. Then a month after that, the woman's attendance started dwindling. Before long, that same critically ill, once, once critically ill woman, whenever recounting the experience, would now rationalize the entire event, taking God completely out of the picture, no longer in her testimony. And she stopped going to church. Even after such an event that was clearly God's doing, it did not guarantee belief. This woman had experienced the wildest sign God could give her, healing. She was surrounded by God's people in prayer. Yet after only two months, that its power dimmed to nothing. Now, this story isn't to say that miraculous signs and the solutions have no place in the ministry of the church. But what Jesus is telling us here is that they have a limited scope and usefulness. It's as scholar Edward Schweizer says, the false component here does not consist in that the royal official was not at all interested in Jesus himself, but is that he wanted something to be obtained through him. That's how that lady saw Jesus on her deathbed something to be grabbed from him, something to be obtained from him, a sign, a solution to her problem. But Jesus is more than this, and Jesus expects more than this. Because even if one were to witness or experience a sign from Jesus, even if we were to get a solution from God that gave us exactly what we wanted, it does not mean one believes. It does not guarantee faith. But what Jesus is essentially telling the people here in our passage, what he's telling the royal official is to not seek the signs, not seek the spectacles, not seek the solutions, not seek the self-imagined God, but what they need to do is to seek the Saviour. Seek the real Jesus. Seek him above all else. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So even though Jesus doesn't actually comply with the royal official's request to come back with him, what's crazy is that the royal official actually got more than he asked for because he came to Jesus with a glimmer of hope that Jesus could perhaps go home with him and then see his son and perhaps do something. But Jesus, Jesus gave him more than he requested, telling him right then and there that his son will live, assuring, guaranteeing that this sickness will not get the better of this boy, but he will be healed and he will live. And Jesus says it right then and there without even going with the official. You know, this would have been quite an extraordinary thing to witness, let alone experience. But for the royal official, while Jesus says, uh, such were wonderful, reassuring words to him. 
there's still one thing that the official has to do. He has to believe in what Jesus has said. He has to trust in the word of God, in the word of Jesus. Because the official wasn't there with his boy. The official didn't have a, like a mobile phone and he called one of his servants like, by the way, is my son okay? All he could do was believe in Jesus' commands. It says, Gary Birch says, the man had to act in faith and walk home without the thing he wanted, had to decide if he would trust Jesus. Jesus demanded a belief from him without seeing a sign or a solution. It was a call of faith. And we can see this gradual progression of this man's belief in the story where it started out with a desperate belief, you know, clasping at straws as he heard about this carpenter from Nazareth who could do all these signs to a belief now that needed a, a, a complete trust in what Jesus had said, which as we keep reading, a belief that progresses again in the best way possible. Look at verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he believed in all his household. See, this royal official had always believed to some extent. It started out as an inadequate faith. Then it progressed to a preliminary faith. But now, as we can see, it had become a full-fledged faith. See, this word, it says, and this word believed here in verse 53 is the confirmation that he wholeheartedly believed in Jesus as his Lord. It's a belief that is associated with surrender. That word belief in the Bible is associated with surrender. So it means that after he came home and saw that his son was healed, he gave his life to Christ. All this time, this royal official had sought after a sign, a spectacle, a solution. But at the end of the story, we, re- he, we see him receive the best gift that he could receive, a saviour. And not only that, but his entire family believed, perhaps even the servants in his household. But more than one person came to faith that day from Jesus performing a sign that a man was called not to see to believe, but to believe and then see. This is what John wants us readers to see from this passage. Don't seek after all the other things that we so often do, but seek the Saviour, Jesus. See, now hearing all this, there is one question to ask. If Jesus asks not to seek a sign, why did he heal the official son anyway? Well, I think in Jesus performing the sign, it tells us three things that, One, Jesus 
displayed who he was. Now, we heard this last week uh, as we heard of the miracle in Cana as well, that Jesus was doing these signs to uh, to show the world who he is, that he's the son of God, that he's clearly the son of God, that simply a mere word from him would mean a miracle such as a healing of a child. You know, This is a real display of authority and power that could only come from somebody like God. But two, it also showed that he was the giver of life, that because Jesus is the son of God, he had the power to give life. As God himself, he created life, he gives life, he sustains life, and this sign was evidence of that. But thirdly, lastly, and I think most beautifully, why Jesus still healed the official sons, even though he said, why are you seeking signs? Is because it showed the compassionate nature of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, in his mercy and in his compassion, saw a desperate man in need, and with the heart of God, he lovingly helped him. Jesus would have known of the importance in those days of the father-son relationship, in those days where the son was the, the most prominent role in the household because that young man would one day be take over the mantle to take care of the family and take care of the family line. And yet while Jesus was likely disappointed with the demand for signs from the royal official, Jesus acts in compassion to him, revealing the character of God to him, that he is gracious, that he is merciful, because that's who Jesus is. He's the saviour who has compassion for the lost. Even though we are like the royal official or the Galileans, we always want something from God. I want that spectacle that would prove your power to me, God. I want that solution that will solve all my problems, God. I want that. I want a God who serves me. Always want things that benefit us rather than what we want, but what we actually need, Jesus gave. Because while we have sought after all sorts of things which aren't him, as Luke chapter 19 verse tells us, chapter 19 tells us, Jesus in his compassion came to seek us and save us, the lost. Jesus in our passage reveals to us his power and might as the son of God, the divine father and son whose relationship is infinitely greater than any earthly father and son because this is the God almighty and he reveals by his miracle to the official that he's indeed the giver of life, that he merely utters the words, your son will live and his son did. But he would then demonstrate to the entire history of mankind that he wasn't only the giver of life to this official son, but he was the giver of life to all those who would believe. Giving his life that we may have life, life in him forever in eternity. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus showed his compassion to the royal official by healing his son but showed an even greater love to him because he healed his soul. By believing and having a full-fledged faith in the Saviour Jesus, 
the official now was no longer in death, but was now in life. The Son of God, the giver of life, in his compassion, saved this man and his entire household. Theirs was a faith that no longer was seeking signs, no longer seeking spectacles, no longer seeking solutions, but theirs was a faith that was now seeking the Saviour, Jesus. What started out as a desperate hope in a miracle ended up being a miracle of true faith in Jesus. You see, the focal point of John's story here isn't the healing of the official son, but the focal point is the conversion of a sinner. That's the most notable miracle here that we must remember from this story. A man, his household, receiving the greatest gift that they could possibly imagine. It's as a theologian William Barclay says so wonderfully, Here was a man who faced and accepted the facts. He had seen what Jesus could do. He had experienced it and there was nothing left for it but surrender. He had begun with a sense of desperate need. That need had been supplied and his sense of need had turned into an overwhelming love. See, this man went from a seeing is believing type of faith to a believing is seeing kind of love. So whether you don't know Jesus yet or you've followed him for most of your life, can I encourage you, don't seek the signs. Don't seek the spectacles. Don't seek the solutions. Don't seek the self-imagined God. But seek Jesus. Come to him. Seek after him. Seek the real saviour. See, the good news of Jesus is the greatest spectacle that we could ever know. Jesus being your saviour is the solution to our deepest need that we were sick and needed saving from sin. So you don't have to seek after these made up self-imagined gods in your mind. But as you look into the word of God, as you look into scripture, you see the real saviour, the true saviour, who by his grace seeks after you. So just like the royal official, trust have faith, believe in the, in the words of Jesus. As Jesus says at the end of John chapter 20, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Father, what a God we have that you would seek after us to save us by the work of Jesus. Help us be a people who continually seek the Saviour, Protect us from the lies, the falsehoods and lure of the spectacle, but let us be drawn to you and your word. Help us not desire uh, just, just the answers from you, but may we desire you above all else. Keep us from shaping in our own minds and hearts a self-made God, but let, let us rest solely in the true Saviour Jesus, whose grace and compassion is seen in full by his work on the cross for us. May we seek after you daily with your joyous hearts, with surrendering hearts, and may we worship you. What a God we worship. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.